I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Humor is great for exposing someone else's rudeness um, because it's not like you're taking offense, but you are taking a position. And they can't really come back at you because what you've said is hopefully funny. So it's making the world a little better, even in that moment. So humour, as well as, I mean, you can be very cutting with humour and you can absolutely ruin a room uh, with it, but you can also create a room and a sense of warmth and, um, and use it as a shield sometimes as well. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, and entertainment, who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humour with you. Humorology is the study of how humour can dramatically improve your business success and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a multi-award winning jack of all jokes, producing work as an author, broadcaster, comedian, actor, filmmaker and radio presenter. He has published many best-selling books, including Join Me, Friends Like These and Yes Man, which served as inspiration for the movie of the same name starring Jim Carrey. In addition to his impressive writing repertoire, he has been a producer of the award-winning Dead Ringers, The Mighty Boosh and Ross Noble Goes Global. When his fingers aren't cranking out high-quality creative and comedic pieces on the keyboard or producing pieces of punchy pop culture, you can hear him on the airways and even as the voice of Sean Hastings in the wildly popular video game series Assassin's Creed. Although it seems like I've listed every bit of media imaginable, this is just the beginning of his wildly creative CV. With such an impressive collection of creative and comedic credits and a reputation for being cordial, responsible and reasonable, it is no surprise that he has written the riotously ribald book Railing Against Rudeness called Fuck You Very Much. Danny Wallace... Welcome to the Humorology Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you. People don't normally uh, say it that way. They say it very politely. They say F you very much, which I think is the title as well. But it's nice to hear it said so rudely and with, <laughs> such, with such pleasure as well. You, you, you relished saying that. 
I really did relish saying it, actually. Because you're allowed to, because it's literature. It's literature, it's a podcast, and why shouldn't we use the, 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 the ribald word? Exactly. Exactly. Well, actually, I I loved fuck you very much Um, because it's an eye opening exploration of human behavior. And and you talk about how there's a chain of rudeness and sort of how it travels and affects people's attitude. Rudeness seems to be more contagious than politeness. Why do you think that is? Well, it's like a virus. Um, it's like it's like going into an office and just sneezing all over everybody because scientists have found that even witnessing a moment of rudeness is enough to turn you much ruder as well because something has been triggered in your mind. Um, even now, the fact that I am saying, uh, imagine something rude has happened. Um, it's like I'm grazing the skin because people listening will be thinking about rude events that have happened to them or rude events that they have witnessed and it makes you angry um, and it also confuses you because it goes against what we all agree society should be so when we see someone being rude they're breaking the rules and we are confused we can't work out why it's happened if it's happened to us we're immediately um I guess riled up you then take that rudeness home with you and you're perhaps a little shorter with your partner maybe you don't sleep as well maybe you drink more um, and the next day, you're much more likely to leap straight to rudeness yourself. So uh, it is literally a chain reaction of rudeness. And and uh, but does that, I, as a psychologist, I'm thinking, is that the, the state you're in um, that we'd say in psychology that if you want anybody to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. So therefore, rudeness would also fit into that category that if you're, go- you're going to be rude, people go, well, I think I can be rude as well now. Absolutely. As soon as you, as soon as someone has been rude to you, it's almost like they've given you permission to, um, I mean, you want to bring them down a peg or two. You want to bring them down to where they have made you feel. Um, You feel disrespected, you feel uh, annoyed, and you want that for them. Um, Rather than rising above it, which we all would love to say we do all the time. That certainly wasn't uh, what what I did um, in the sort of the inciting incident in in the book, which tells a story about how I tried to buy a hot dog from a lady whose whole job was just to sell hot dogs. So it should have been very easy. I should have said, can I have a hot dog? And she said, yes, that's great. I make hot dogs. And instead, um, I just seemed to have annoyed her the very second I walked into the hot dog place. And she did not want to sell me a hot dog really at all. She wondered why I was there in the first place. And to cut a long story very short, I ended up being ejected from the diner um, in front of my son, who couldn't work out why two grown-ups weren't able to do the world's simplest transaction. And as I left, I was just thinking, what happened there? Did I do something wrong? Did she do something wrong? Did I interrupt her at the wrong time? Did I? Uh, some, was there a sign I missed? Um, and I found that it was on my mind so much that I was doing weird things. I was... I flipped off a building. I used my middle finger um, in a gesture of anger at an empty building. There was no one in it. It was the hot dog place later that night. And yet I was so annoyed that I found myself doing something which is not a normal thing for a human person to do. Um, And I was angrier on the road because it felt like every motorist was trying to get in my way. And I found myself every now and again, there'd be a silence in the car. And out of nowhere, I'd just go, it's just unbelievable that woman. So it just constantly on my mind. And that's after a couple of days of that, I just thought, 
this is interesting our reaction response to rudeness um and uh and and, and what we do with it and of course humor is a great way of of of, of popping that bubble sometimes as well well that's what i was going to come on to yeah i mean is that is that the 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 way to appease this is to make people laugh more so that they they're left less affected by the rudeness i think it's a great way to interrupt any moment humor is um, a, a wonderful tool for that it can pop tension um you know i i did jury service not long ago and um I remember just sitting with all the tense jurors in a little side room and um, I just said what we were all thinking, but in a, in a sort of a, a funny way, which, you know, the, without giving anything away, the, um, the, the, um, the prosecutor was going down some very odd paths, all to do with household appliances, which had absolutely nothing to do with anything. And so I was able to just sort of use that silence in the room to make a joke about washing machines that then bonded us all in that moment. So the tension went away and we became a team. And humour is great for that. Humour is great for exposing someone else's rudeness um, because it's not like you're taking offence, but you are taking a position and they can't really come back at you because what you've said is hopefully funny. So it's making the world a little better, even in that moment. So humour, as well as, I mean, you can be very cutting with humour and you can absolutely ruin a room um, with it but you can also create a room and a sense of warmth and um and use it as a shield sometimes as well i don't know i think you're uh, absolutely right i'm interested to go into when you said bonding uh, because i i think the whole humorology project is all about um how it can be used for good and mm. bonding is uh, the, the i was very interested in in um f you very much which i'm now going to call it because <laughs> i now feel like i've been uh, very rude, rude to you yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um the negativity negativity affects the frontal lobes mm. and just a moment of incivility but there's a great example in the book where it's, it makes surgeons 50% less effective. And yeah. uh, you know, the way we treat each other also has an impact on us. Whereas if you could replace that with humour, that would uh, make all the difference and also make the surgeon 50%, well, at least 100% effective. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good, um, it's such a startling uh, thing that I found out there from uh, um, an Israeli academic um, who had been looking into this. And really, I mean, I think his work's very important because a lot of uh, deaths in hospitals are down to medical error. And he has sort of managed to connect medical error to incivility or the psychology of the surgeon or the doctor in that moment. And it's been shown that if you are rude to a doctor, they start to miss things um, because their mind is elsewhere. And, you know, experiments were done in Israel where they did find that, yes, um, doctors who were, or surgeons who were interrupted or who were treated um, inexplicably rudely, either directly before or during surgery, became, I mean, they sort of fell to pieces. They would misdiagnose, they would ask for the wrong instruments, they wouldn't be able to communicate as effectively with the people around them, and lives, in theory, could be lost. So if you think that, you know, so many uh, so many medical errors in a hospital, you, you just, they all just fly under the radar as errors. But if you can find a root cause for at least some of those errors, um, 
and you can put it down to incivility, then we really do have to look at how we treat each other. And yeah, I always try and go for the funny in, in whatever situation. I find it's a good thing to do with people of authority. Um, I don't fear, you know, the police, or I don't fear. Um, and I'm in, in many ways, I'm very, I'm lucky because I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white man uh, who wears glasses, and so you know, the chances of something going wrong are markedly lower. Um, however, in those situations where someone's being maybe slightly officious or using their authority in a way that perhaps uh, seems a little strong, you can make a joke because it shows that you don't fear the situation it shows that you are human you're humanizing the situation and again you're bonding in a weird way if they don't laugh that's up to them you've done your bit um and i i find that humor is very useful for those situations as well um when you are perhaps lower status um if you are hosting um an awards do um you know it's a high status job but it's it's kind of it's better to play at low status because you're the idiot who's up on you know who's drawn the short straw essentially who's got to go out in front of everyone else and you should make fun of yourself before they have the chance to and bond them with a bit of you know humor before you you kind of move on so i do you know i keep coming back to that word i've never really thought about it much before but yes it's the the bonding nature of humor appeals to me hugely well i think that's fascinating and i you're a great speaker and i've seen you do wonderful awards hosting do you think you can be a good communicator at that level without humor oh sure um but i think that the best communicators that i've seen always throw some humor in no matter what they're talking about um john amici obe um yeah john. Uh, do you i mean my god yeah. that guy i was lucky enough to talk to him recently and i in, in preparation for it I, I just went down a john amici rabbit hole and I would recommend people do because the stories he has got and the empathy he has and the things that have happened to him, um, bad um, and good, he's able to talk about in remarkably uh, brilliant ways while every now and again, just when it feels right, just lobbing in a little lobbing in a little grenade, a little little humour to, to have a little explosion of fun before we get back to the serious stuff. And audiences, I think, sometimes need that little release. If you're talking about something very heavy, if you're talking about something that makes people uncomfortable, it's quite nice just to punctuate it with a little moment that lets everyone breathe and go, okay, good, we're allowed to make a noise. Now we can concentrate again. So I would describe that as the difference between a good speaker and a great speaker is the ability to, as you put it, lob in some humour every now and again. Yeah, and it's all about tone and timing. It's all about um, judging the room and what you can get away with. And sometimes I suppose it would have to be done on the fly because on a piece of paper, it's difficult to know what the vibe of the room will be like. Um, but if you can ride that vibe a little bit and know what you can get away with and when they need like a little bit of light relief, um, that's, you know, you've got to be aware. That's the thing about humour as well. You have to be aware about when you can employ it. You know, don't come out at a funeral with your, with your 10 best jokes immediately. <laughs> well, yeah, and even John Cleese um, read yeah. the room, if you yeah. remember, and those, which was his best friend, um, uh, it was uh, Graham Chapman. Graham Chapman, it? yeah. yeah. And uh, for for our listeners, everybody should look up that, but don't try this at home. Yes, he is. It, he is a recognised expert. 
um yeah. and uh, and there was a certain you know if yeah people people knew the dynamic of the relationship let's say that yeah no no it's it's i think it's very important to you, you said an important word to to read the room for our listeners who obviously aren't all performers and things, but everybody at some stage probably has to get up and make us do a talk at work or something or a wedding, for instance. What lessons can, do you think you can share with somebody? I think the word, when you said reading the room, I heard listening to an audience and, mm. and engaging what they need. Well, what would you think about you could, say to somebody here's a couple of important things that you need to take away well only from my own experience and everyone will will be different but for me it's all about tone and um my rule has always been especially because they're strangers right generally that you know you don't know any of these people they probably never heard of you so you have to come out and strike the strike the right tone and respect is important um respecting the event um, certainly establishing that you do, because then you can start to play. And for me, the important rule has always been you can take the mickey, but never take the piss. Because people like the mickey being taken out of the person next to them or the mickey being taken out of them. But no one likes if a stranger comes up and starts taking the piss out of their mate or, you know, them, especially in a sort of, you know, maybe at a comedy club, it's fine. But at, you know, uh, an event where perhaps you're supposed to be speaking, the Mickey is fine. Just establish that you respect the event first, get a handle on the tone of it, you know, and um, and feel free to play around a little bit later on. But yeah, the first few minutes, you know, you, you need to establish that you're comfortable, establish um, that you've got some jokes, um, you're not here to do any harm, um, but you will happily take the mickey. Well, what form does that take? I, th I think that's fine. That's lovely, in fact. And uh, But how do we do that? What are the specifics? Because I would say one of the things, you said the word respect, which I think is a really important word when you get it. My form of respect is I will dress appropriately for instance so because instantly visually people can go he comes into the conference he respects the room he's not wearing tatty jeans or whatever so there's that um instant uh, mm -hmm. acknowledgement that he has come in and respected it how else can people respect it and the other question is have you ever crossed the line uh, between taking the mickey and taking the piss <laughs> the um yeah the clothing is 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 you know visually you have to look like you're there to do a job and you you're there for a reason i would say um in terms of the respect it's it's very often you know most people there aren't the boss most people there uh, are working for the company and you don't want to punch down on those people but you can find something funny about their job or something that you know they do or or really think about what it is that they do. And then you can sort of, you know, crack that door open slightly and allow them the relief that, you know, someone else understands. And I think you can, you know, you can have a bit of a pop at the the top brass, but not at the the guy who's making a pound, you know, a pound an hour compared to his boss making a million. And um, what was the other thing you asked? And you said, have I ever crossed a line? I'm sure, yes. I mean, I've misjudged things. Um, 
I'm sure. Um, I try not to, and I go through what I'm. I, I if it was an awards thing, I always write everything bespoke, and that's very nerve wracking because you don't have, you know, fifteen minutes of tried and tested stuff. You've got what you did for them yesterday, and you're going to try it out and say it for the first time out loud. And you've got a couple of things that you know will work, but others that you don't. And you may have to drop some as you go, as you realize, oh, they didn't like that, so they're not going to like this. Sometimes you want to take a risk. And sometimes it can be in the most dangerous sort of moments where you think, oh, I shouldn't. But that's what, if it pays off, that's what makes it great. And I remember once, it was after a a radio recording, and um, they were talking about the old host who'd you know passed away not long before and was a beloved institution and he was maybe in his 80s very very British guy very reserved um, wouldn't show feelings and they were talking about him in such a lovely way and I'd met him a few times and he was great and one lady particularly was going you know and he found it so hard to talk about love and uh, I was there with him at the end and um, I just uh, I held his hand And I just kept whispering to him, we all love you. We all love you. And then that was it. He was gone. And there was a big long pause. And I thought I shouldn't. But I went, sounds like he might have died of embarrassment. (laughs) And and then they all looked at me. And I doubled down. And I went, I'm just saying, it sounds like you killed the man. And then, thank God. God, laugh. laugh came. And we could all laugh. And it was just about taking that moment of tension and taking a risk with it. Because if it had gone wrong, they'd have just looked at me and gone, I really think you should leave. Yeah. And I would have gone, I'm so sorry. And I would have left and I would never have talked to anyone again. Um, <laughs> but in that moment, it was like, this is this is a risk worth taking. That would be brilliant. And the danger. But obviously, that... that, that the danger and understanding it because I think that the, the people who do humor best are the people who actually listen the best mm. who actually have a sense of the room and understand it now how does that come with experience but you also have to have your attention in the right places you have to if you're looking at, at one person or an audience of 10,000 you have to be gauging what's happening do they like that are their eyebrows going back up mm-hmm. going tell me more or are they going down going we we don't like this yeah uh, I think you know especially in a one-on-one situation I mean I you know if you're doing an interview or something the 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 most important thing is to listen um you know I'll have, if I'm interviewing some some uh, star or something, I, I will have a list of a few questions that I that I know I can hit if I need to. And then it's the, then it's just like the art of making it seem as smooth as possible. But what you want is to welcome them, uh, maybe notice something about them, um, ask them about it, um, or rely on your first question, and then listen. And then whatever they say, should lead to your next question like any good conversation. It can ne- it will never be funny if it's just like, now my next question. It's, it's, it should flow and, and it should be um, a chat between two human beings. 
yeah, you put me under enormous pressure now because <laughs> I was I wasn't but listening to anything yeah. you just said. <laughs> well, then how do you know what I was saying about listening? Ah, <laughs> you see. <laughs> no, but I think that, that that is brilliant because that's really where it gets ultimate. It's funny thing is I always say that people normally do this stuff naturally, but when they're given sort of the opportunity on a radio or on television or on stage something seems to blow up in their mind like it's a different thing but you and I we go for a cup of coffee we don't take notes with us do we no we don't we don't no. go oh Danny did you see the game on Saturday you yeah know? exactly although once I did that as a joke I was meeting up with um um, the the presenter, the very uh, funny man, Rick Edwards, and we our paths had crossed, um, and we were like, we should be friends. I mean, you know, that's the thing. We should be friends. So let's meet up. Let's go to the pub. And so we went to the pub, and um, we had all our chat and all our small talk. And at some point, I just took out a printout of his Wikipedia page, which I printed out, and said, "So tell me, will there be a second series of Tool Academy? Um, you know?" And then he would have to. And I think. I think he thought I was serious at first. I think he thought I was a bit odd because it was the yeah. first time we'd really hung out. Um, but then it was then it was absolutely fine. It was just like you know, it was a prop. I've I've heard you say that when you were a child, and this has fascinated me, and this is what I wanted to know. This jumped out at me when you were a child. You you used to go out and say to your parents, "I'm going out to make a friend." Yeah. As and and I said, that seems either remarkably confident or remarkably delusional uh, <laughs> but yeah. what was that just a facility you had from a very early age and was humor important to that facility yeah I was always drawn to the funny kids um I, it seemed very, it seemed almost pointless to me to have a friend that didn't make you laugh um and then when they made me laugh it was just precious and I knew that I wanted to spend my time with them and make them laugh and have that exchange, you know, it's gold. And yeah, I used to go out and make a friend because um, I'm an only child. So I grew up in a very sort of grown up household where you'd hear grown ups being quiet or talking about <laughs> books or reading or listening to opera or whatever it was they were doing, the news. And um, so I had to make friends. And A, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. And so I was constantly having to move school and start again. And B, when you went on holiday, you saw everyone else with their siblings. Um, and then the siblings would start to meet other people with siblings, and then there'd be a gang. And I, if I didn't do something about it, I'd be off to one side. And so I would find out if there was a games room, and I would go to the games room where they were doing table tennis or arcades, and I would just make a friend. And um, and yeah, and that's, that's just it. That's just what I would do, um, because I had to, because otherwise it would just be me. Well, no, from a psychological perspective, I'm interested in whether that's nature or nurture. I mean, because you have my son's an only child and he has that same facility. Ah. But but I would say that inherent in his personality is first he likes people. Yeah. So therefore and he wants to be around people. So therefore he goes, I want this. So therefore, I'm going to have to learn this skill set. And I would just wonder which part is leading in that, that ability. Was the young Danny always funny? I was always drawn to humour and I listened to comedy rather than music a lot of the time. I'd go to bed listening to Faulty Towers or Tom Lehrer 
on an auto reverse cassette, you know, so it would go all night. Or Blackadder, you know, the the kind of the the audio um, versions, and that to me was just gold. When I heard Tom Lehrer, I was like, wow. Listen to, I mean, I had very little idea what he was talking about half the time because it would be about Werner von Braun. Um, and, you know, uh, the politics of missiles in the late 1960s. And I didn't know what he was on about, but <laughs> I listened to his timing and I listened to the audience and I listened to the individual laughs and the mastery he had and the control he had over them and uh, the talent he, he has. And um, that's what I really, really loved. And in terms of nature nurture, my mum is an incredibly golden hearted and social woman who sees the best in everybody. And I, I, I swear half the reason we've had to move so many times over the years is because she knows so many people that it's impossible for her to walk to the shops without stopping 50 times. And I would always play little tricks. Um, you know, they were very encouraging of, of humour, even when I thought it would get me into trouble. Because uh, I remember once I put a sign on my mum's back, my mum's Swiss, and I, I put a sign on her back as she went to the shops walking around Bath, and it just said, I am a wise old Swiss woman. And when she got home, she was just like, so many people smiling at me today. And I was like, yes, because I put this on your back. And instead of being annoyed, she was delighted. And I remember there was an old man down our road called Mr. Montgomery, long since passed. And he would get so angry at me and my friends for playing football. And once the football glanced, his garage door glanced it. And you'd think that we'd put firecrackers through his letterbox. He was straight at the window and he was going, who are you? And a big go at us. And he always had all these uh, pot plants outside his uh, porch, loads of them. And then one day, Dad brought home a laser printer from work. And so I uh, used it. And I created um, a letterhead for the Hay Fever Sufferers of the UK Unite Alliance. And I wrote this pompous letter to Mr. Montgomery, saying that one of our representatives had been in the local area and had done a pollen count outside his porch and had found it to exceed the national average by some degree. And that he was from now on to limit the number of pot plants in his porch to either six large or eight small or further action would be taken. And uh, I put it through his door. And my mistake was that I thought an extra joke would be if he phoned up my friend Simon to complain. So I pretended it was from my friend Simon, who was head of the UK hay fever people. And I put his number there. And then he phoned Simon um, in a rage. But sadly, he got through to Simon's mum who didn't understand what was going on and assumed that Simon had been kidnapped and this mad old man was part of some kind of plot. And I, when she phoned me to ask me if I was responsible and my stomach dropped and I knew I'd done the worst thing that any human being had ever done, ever. This was an atrocity of unknown and epic proportions. And I was like, I'm gonna have to tell mum. And mum gets home from shopping, this time with no sign on her back. And I go, Mum, I've done something really bad. And she's like, what? And I said, I, I don't, I can't even tell you. And she says, go on. And so I say, well, you know, Mr. Montgomery. And then I tell her about the letter and I tell her about the pot plants and I tell her how angry he was. And when I look up, she was her, she was crying with laughter. She was just like, that is brilliant. <laughs> and I was like, but I, th- I thought I was going to get into trouble with everybody from the manufacturer of the laser printer on down. But instead... <laughs> my mum just encouraged that kind of stuff. And my dad thought it was great as well because he didn't like Mr. Montgomery. He's always leaving notes in our car. So, you know, I was encouraged to do elaborate things um, by by these people. So I think nature and nurture both played their part. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, brilliant. What a fantastic story. And do you want to apologise to Mr. Montgomery again now, live on air? Absolutely not. Fuck him. (laughs) (laughs) So, Danny, what makes you laugh? What makes me laugh? Um, Quick wit, um, surprising humour, pub stories that that build and build. Um, Gentle misfortunes happening to grumpy people. I absolutely love. I've got a friend called Jeremy. And to most people, he's a very grumpy man. Uh, I, I see him. I, I know who he is. And he's lovely and he's soft. But he has got a gruff kind of exterior, which is why one of my favourite things in the world is when something bad happens to Jeremy. And it's it's generally stuff like, I mean, his name is Jeremy Salisbury. And that's it. And so every time he goes up to any reception desk and says, Jeremy Salisbury, without fail, they'll write his name as something like Jeremy Salad or, <laughs> you know, or Jimothy Singsbury. And then he has to sit down with this picture of himself and this ridiculous name. And he always now just takes a picture and just sends it to me. And it is the greatest thing in the world for me. And it makes me laugh. And I, it makes me laugh just thinking about his grumpy face every time someone does him the disrespect accidental disrespect of just not listening or not writing his name down and you know it's not like he's got some mad name or an unusual one or a traditional welsh name with you know a few vowels and bloods of l's it's just jeremy salisbury and no one can spell it right and it is the best he wants he i asked him i said go on this website and he did and he said well i'm in a queue 
And I said, what do you mean you're in a queue? And he said, the website says there's people queuing. And I didn't know you could have to queue on a website. And to me, it seemed just completely natural that it would happen to Jeremy, that he would go to a website and he wouldn't be allowed in. Like things like that makes me make me laugh. I think that um, a life without humor would be uh, would be difficult at best and impossible at worst. So, well, you just said a life without humor would be in, in, impossible. What would the world be like without humor? Well, it would be boring. It would be it would be boring. Um, so much of humor is about surprise and uh, delight, and taking people down one path and then revealing that it's another. And those are those great moments. When I mentioned quick wit before, I'm talking about um, I'm talking about people like uh, you know, like Paul Merton, for example, on Have I Got News for You. It can be presented with uh, a totally ordinary sentence or a strange, boring political fact, and will somehow uh, turn it into something amazing and fast. Or Ross Noble, who is able to spin huge, wonderful, uh, surreal tales from nothing more than what he finds uh, on an audience member's wrist, you know, or a tattoo or uh, a mere thought they share for the first time he can do an hour on i remember being in south africa with him and it was the south africa the cape town comedy festival and we'd been recording this show that you mentioned earlier uh, ross noble goes global where we would uh, go around and have an adventure and then he would talk about it on stage and he goes out and he does an hour and there's like a standing ovation and he comes backstage and he says to me um did we get everything we need and i said um, we did um uh, we could do with something about Remember we saw those whales yesterday in the sea and he just thinks for a second and he goes, all right. And as they're still applauding, he just turns around, goes back out, does another 15 minutes, all improvised about the whales we saw yesterday. And I mean, there are people you can't be jealous of in life and uh, someone like that. So pure of talent and such a nice guy. Um, and so funny, quite serious in real life sometimes, but you know, on a stage, uh, relentlessly funny. Well, it's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you knew, but I, 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 my first Edinburgh festival was on the bill with uh, Paul Martin, as he was known. Paul, Paul Martin, Martin, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at, at the time, um, my band, Morris Minor and the Majors and Mark Steele. Which, which, which by the way, uh, was a huge influence on me growing up. It was, it was the reason I bought, now that's what I call music, whatever it was, 12? 11. 11. Um, yeah. was was because of that I'd seen you guys on top of the pops and I was like what is this <laughs> this is good because I was super into uh, you know and I don't mean this in a disparaging way but the novelty style records so I would buy you know um, Star Trekking or um, La La Nini Nunu the French and Saunders one and of course Morris Minor uh, and the Majors and Stutter Rap and um, made it a point of principle to learn all the words and um, years later, you know, got to know Tony Hawks very well and once went round his house and he greeted me at the door uh, with an acoustic guitar playing me a live version of Stutter Rap. So that was like a, a wonderful moment from my childhood. But no, so I'm well aware. And, um, and, and yes, so you were on a, you were on a bill with uh, Paul. Well, yeah, but, but we, I still know Paul very well uh, to this day. And, and I have, uh, the thing about being on a bill in Edinburgh is you spend four weeks um, seeing everybody's hacks over and over again yeah. and um, I know him very well and I once had to do an audition for uh, and they wanted a stand-up comedian and I was music and comedy obviously with the Calypso twins as well and oh, yeah. so I didn't have any stand-up stuff 
Oh, wait, were you in the Calypso what? Twins as well with Ainsley? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was, then I, I've uh, seen I, you perform at the Comedy Store's 20th anniversary. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, so, well, there you uh, go. I, so, was, I was a tall black one. Yes, <laughs> I thought you were. <laughs> um, um, yeah, so I I knew Paul's whole act and I rang him up one day and I said, look, I've got nothing to do for this audition. Can I do the first five minutes of your act for the yeah, audition? Yeah, because I, I know it off my heart. Because I know it off my heart. And, uh, and he was kind enough and good enough to do it. But you're talking extraordinary comedy minds. Yeah. Who... Um, and, I, you know, I'd actually love Ross Noble and Paul Merton to actually be wired up by psychologists mm. just to see how fast those neurons and ne those neural pathways are actually activating. Yeah. Because it's got to be extraordinary. I mean, that's the ultimate in intelligence, isn't it, to be able to tie those things up. Yeah, I think so. It's all about making those connections, isn't it? That's what they do. And not only make those connections, but, um, you know, someone like Lee Mack as well is able to think in yeah. fully formed jokes. Um, so the way he'll come back quick isn't just with a funny thought, but with a perfectly worded funny thought, um, you know, in the right order for maximum kind of comedy impact. Do you think people can become funnier? I think there are things you can do. I think there are ways, um, there are techniques or maybe ways of creating something that is funny, but I'm not sure that makes you funny. Does that make sense? So it's that old thing, I suppose, of, um, I think people can be funny. I think anyone can be funny, but I don't think, like, I very much enjoy hugely boring people um, about whom there is nothing funny because that is where you find funny things. Uh, they don't know it's funny um, and you can't tell them it's funny, but it's very interesting talking to extraordinarily boring people. And I find them fascinating because of that. And it makes me wonder, it's like, what, what do you find? What do they find funny? You know, um, what happens if they say something funny? You know, one of my favourite books of all time is The Diary of a Nobody, and my, one of my favourite scenes is when Pooter, Mr Pooter, who is a very boring um, uh, man with ideas above his station, he, very unlike him, he makes a joke at a party, and it goes well, and it is a revelation for him. Uh, people are laughing. His wife is delighted. He, he can't believe it. And he's over the moon. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, like shaking with laughter and pride um, because he has, he has done this thing which has escaped him. And, and I think that, that for me, that says kind of a lot. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of things uh, you can't do. There's plenty of things I can't do. Um, we, you know, hopefully work with and understand humour in a, in a, in a way, um, and others don't, and that's absolutely fine. I, th yeah, I think that there are things you can do that someone can teach you that that will be funny, but it won't make you funny. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, well I think 
attitude has a lot to do with it from a psychological perspective if you have the attitude that I'm not funny I don't do jokes I can't uh, get punchlines right or something that that's what inhibits you yeah at that point oh yeah no yeah in that in that in that respect absolutely you can you you have to have the confidence that something will land or even just to try um because fear is what stops a lot of people um, from trying, and because uh, they think this will go wrong, this will go bad. I can't do it. I'm I'm not funny. Uh, and look, maybe they're not, but they won't know unless they uh, they try. Having the balls to to take that risk, no matter how small, you know, and no matter how gentle the the joke or the moment, um, yeah, is is absolutely key. Well, yeah, and I I I would say that confidence comes with the right attitude which is why I used I think your attitude is great I I once heard you say that whenever anything goes wrong your attitude is well that's a story yeah so you're you're allowing things to go on when I'm training people um in making speeches CEOs and and things like that I always say look forward to the stuff going wrong because that's when you'll have the most fun and and do you think that attitude helps with getting more humor into your life it's like um you know with my kids i tell them if they've done something they've made a mistake they've done something wrong uh i go well look you know now you know now you know not to do that again so actually it's quite good that that happened because now you've got that in your toolbox and it's an experience that you can own and you decide now it's your decision you go i'll never do that again and I think there's a similar psychological thing that 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 happens when things go wrong in your life, particularly like when I was writing a column every single week for a magazine. I did it for 11 years. And a lot of that was just I had to notice things every week, which can be exhausting. Um, but I had to notice things. So it was actually a gift to me when something went a bit wrong. I crashed the rental car, for example, um, because I was like, well, look, that's a column, maybe a two-parter. It's material. And you... I, I quite like the um, I like the craft of uh, creating a story from something and working out what the key elements are and what the beginning is and um, what to hold back, um, what to reveal and when. Um, and that's also why I love the pub because the pub is a training ground for anecdotes. I love well, I love the pub. I, I'm interested when you were talking about uh, your your attitude to your children and teaching the right psychological makeup sort of thing what really struck me because I think we're very similar in this way is you said that your question to your son at one stage was what made you laugh today yeah. at school yeah I, I've done it to all, all three of my children and uh, I still do um, because if you ask them well what did you learn today uh, they don't really know they were they were bored in the moment Um, but they remember what made them laugh and um and what they learn is the same as all the other kids so what made them laugh is going to be different because it'll be a different dynamic or a different friend or a different moment and it gives me an insight into what they find funny where they find joy um their friendships their experiences um whether they're happy and that for me has always always been the most important question because it gets me closer to their world which is a world where you know it's the moments that normally slip between the cracks that they may forget by tomorrow um because it was just small it was one of many things that made them laugh but it was a snapshot of a moment in their life 
and a relationship or a friendship or where they are psychologically. So, I, yeah, for me, it's always been a, a very important question to ask. I think it's a brilliant question. I, I used to say something similar, which is why it reminded me uh, to my son. I, I said, tell me three fun or funny things that happened to you at school today. Yeah, because, nice. Uh, and and it, it's the same thing. And from a psychological perspective, what happens is your uh, reticular activating system in the brain, it spots four things you remember. Like if you've ever wanted a certain car or a you know, toaster or a pair of shoes, you suddenly see that car everywhere yeah. because you're looking for it. And if you can get people to look for the good stuff that happened in their life, the fun stuff, the laughs, I think that's a huge advantage because you start to train your brain to look for good stuff. Which is, a, which is something that our brains, you know, need um, to, they need to uh, be nourished and fed by these uh, experiences and um, they need to be uh, relived, um, you know, as much as, as much as possible. If I asked you to write a business case for humour, Danny, what would you include in it? Um, I would say um, with um, humour, um, there can be risk involved, you know, we have to make them aware of uh, risk. Um, with particularly long stories, your interest rates may vary. <laughs> um, but as part of a corporate culture, um, I mean, the returns are worth it. I, I can't, you know, I haven't worked in many offices. Um, ironically, I was told off with some friends once for laughing in my office. And we were throwing an idea around and we, we found it funny. We were laughing and the door opened and this lady just went, can you keep the laughter down? And I said, this is the BBC comedy department, because that's where we were. Oh, God. And I was like, this is a sign that we're working. If you can hear laughs, that's good, right? That shows that it's not just we're mucking about, trying to annoy you by laughing. We're coming up with an idea here. And what I wanted to say was, you know, why is your office always so quiet? Because, you know, in terms of, in terms of, uh, you know, what we're supposed to be doing here. So ironically, um, uh, you know, that's where I was told off for laughing. But I can't imagine working in an office where humour was uh, frowned upon or wasn't seen as uh, a boon, a bonus, a boost. Um, I can't imagine bosses walking past some people who are laughing and saying, enough of that. Uh, I would want to encourage it because perhaps you'll get more loyal employees. You'll certainly get more relaxed employees. You'll certainly get employees who bond more, who know each other more, you know, providing the humour is decent and, uh, you know, not like David Brent. <laughs> yeah, no, please not like David Brent. <laughs> we come to the part of the show, Danny, that we like to call quick fire questions. Quick fire questions! <laughs> Who's the funniest business person that you've met? Now, obviously, you work in the radio business, you work in um, the film business, so it can be anyone. Well, I'm going to go for a general answer here, and I'm going to say Americans. Um, in terms of the business side of things, American, in, in the world of, you know, film or television or comedy, they're funny. They're whip-smart they're slightly sarcastic i think because to rise to um that kind of level they've got to be 
you know, very fast, very intelligent, very sociable. And so they tend to be very funny as well. So I would say, um, you know, from finance managers to, um, you know, advisors of one description or another, um, the Americans, the Americans uh, seem to be funnier. Well, it's not interesting because um, normal people are concerned. Somebody said this to me actually yesterday, or the Americans just don't get our sense of humor. And I immediately said, having worked in all the clubs in America and done telly in America, I said, no, once you get to that level, they are hilarious. Oh, they yeah. Are, yeah, your word whip smart, I think, is is exactly right for what well, they are. The thing is, they absolutely do get our sense of humor. And and to be honest, the executives that I've dealt with out there uh, have been frighteningly intelligent. And you feel like the dumbest guy in the room uh, half the time. Because uh, also, I mean, they're sort of trained to uh, read scripts and and and, and understand comedy um, from a, an early part of their career. So they garner all these skills that mean that they can understand humour properly rather than just hang around and eventually get promoted to head of whatever. Um, <laughs> they, they, they earn it and it's cutthroat. Yeah. And if they don't do the job well, they're out. They don't hang on for another eight years or whatever. So, um, and they do get our, our humour and our comedy. If you look at the top tier, just as you say, it's the funniest stuff in the world. Um, it's just that there's so much TV out there that we tend to get a lot of the rubbish as well. Um, but for every, you know, for every eight terrible sitcoms, there's one absolute stonker. Yeah, and and that whole... Have you ever seen Neil Simon's laughter on the 43rd floor? No. Which was about um, the your show of shows in right. America and when uh, humour really took off. And it was basically the writer's room. And in mm -hmm. that writer's room were Mel Brooks and Woody oh, Allen. Wow. And yeah. suddenly everybody who shaped the whole of the future of, of comedy and television there. And it was just extraordinary. I think Neil Simon was actually in that room and wrote it about um, his experiences there. And you suddenly realise that actually without that American sort of humour, and especially the, the Jewish humour that got yeah. transported into there, there would be no humour no, yeah. or, or to that level around the world. We'd still be watching fat men falling over, to be honest. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I must, uh, yeah, I'm going to check that out. What book makes you laugh? Um, I mentioned Diary of a Nobody for those reasons of it being uh, a guy with ideas above his station, um, quite pompous, taking himself far too seriously. That's always been funny to me, whether it's Basil Fawlty doing the same thing um, or Adrian Mole. And Adrian Mole was, I think, the first book that um, made me properly laugh out loud. And the first time I realised that um, words on a piece of paper, just printed, dead words, bits of ink, uh, in the right order could make you laugh um and it's an extraordinary thing to think that that's that's true and when i first read diary of a nobody even though it was written you know 100 and whatever years ago the jokes still stand because people haven't changed um he is hyacinth bouquet he is basil faulty he is adrian mole um so yeah so so uh, i would say adrian mole great choice great choice what film makes you laugh the most surprising film that's made me laugh recently 
I would say, um, are the Jumanji films, which uh, I was all prepared to think these are going to be bad. No, they're good. Um, there is, um, you know, uh, uh, just great dynamics to it. Um, there's just just enough room for a little bit of improv. I got really bored of those films where they would keep in 10 minutes of the cast mucking about with just an endless exchange where it was just diminishing returns. I'd be like, all right, crack on, next scene. Um, but but Jumanji, I think, got it just right. No, interesting choice. We've never had Jumanji on the show before. Um, we're going to take a shift to the other side um, and go a little bit serious and ask, what is not funny? Externalised kind of directed uh, cruelty. Um, anything designed to make someone feel less than they are. Um, anything that hammers down uh, on, on a weaker group. Um, that's not to say you can't make jokes about them. Um, but again, it's that take the mickey but never the piss. Humour can be a massively bonding. I mean, it is a massively bonding thing. And it can start discussions and it can reduce uh, the fear of talking about these things. You can take a risk if you want to and, and you know, use humour to diffuse those situations and perhaps get talking in that way. But you have to be careful because um, it can't be weaponized. That's the thing. I think weaponized humour um, is, uh, is, is probably not funny. You can undermine. That's it. It's you know, it's punching down basically, isn't it? It's um, it's fine to undermine a regime, but don't uh, don't undermine the people who are struggling. Yeah, it's the difference of punching up, punching down, uh, bullying, I suppose, as well. Yeah. It's you know, it 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 can be used as a force for good or a force for evil, but you just yeah. have to judge the attitude, right? Yes, I think so. You know, I've I've never been really drawn to that that side of humour. I prefer everyone to have a nice time and to feel good, and for uh, jokes to be a joyous thing uh, rather than a kind of a pointed one. What word makes you laugh, Danny? Oh, but also on that, what's not funny? Stubbing your toe. Um, stubbing your toe is not funny. However, running into a window is very funny, um, and they're both very similar things to happen to a person, um, but they are immeasurably different in terms of humour. Seeing someone stub their toe does not make me laugh. Seeing someone run full pelt into a window <laughs> is hilarious, and yeah. something I look forward to. In fact, so um, so just on a on a purely physical scale, there are differences there as well. Why is that so funny when somebody walks into a plane? I I've still got an image of my friend Jeremy Wilson, who who did that. We were we were playing a bit of a friends tennis tournament, just and everything, and and we said come into lunch, and he hit it full pelt. As it's just coming surprise. Into it. It's just surprise. It's just the the shock of it. Um, as long as they're not hurt, um, but it's great. I could watch a full. You've been framed of just of just that happening. Okay, well, yeah. there you go, ITV, a special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Presented by Danny Wallace, of course. <laughs> yeah. What word makes you laugh, Danny? Battle axe. Um, because I think it's such a funny word because it's so sort of rude. And um, I remember just driving through a village or a town called Battle Axe. And um, it's just a sign just says Battle Axe. And all I had to do as uh, we both 
past it in the car was just give my wife a little glance. And she knew, she knew what I was saying. I didn't say it, I didn't have to. But it's such a great sort of outdated word. I love those kind of, uh, those outdated words, things that I grew up with from like the Beano um, or the Bruins, um, where someone's a, someone's a battle axe or, you know, a, a ninny hammer. Um, so, yeah, so I think battle axe is a, is a funny word for me. It's a great word. And it's it, uh, it's so unfair. Know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> no. it's great. But it's, but it's so descriptive as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's so horribly descriptive. But it's, <laughs> I know, I, I love it. What sound makes you laugh? Um, I think there's probably the sound of a man hitting glass. I think it? that would do it. I think I would need to be in the room. If I knew it had happened, I think it would be absolutely delightful. Yeah, let's go for that. Let's go for the rattle of a good French door. <laughs> That's good. Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Um, I think funny. Um, there's something uh, that is shareable about being funny. I think that there's a certain uh, snootiness to being considered clever because it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's Because it's something that is yours and sort of yours alone, if you like, whereas funny is like a gift that you can spread around the room. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a good description of it. And finally, Danny, desert island gags. You can only take one joke with you to a desert island. What is it? Well, anyone near YouTube should Google uh, or YouTube uh, Norm MacDonald moth joke. Um, it's a wonderful joke told beautifully. A great example of, of just building and building and um, uh, not knowing where he's going with something, but finding his way back to the road. Um, if not that, then this. Two fish in a tank. One says, right, how'd you drive this thing? <laughs> Next direction. Two lines. Takes you one way. Brings you another. Beautiful misdirection. Absolutely beautiful. And I do advise everybody to look up the Norm MacDonald joke as well. God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, brilliant, brilliant comic. Um, well, Danny, I, I hope you realise that I have been taking the mickey and not the piss. <laughs> and when I say fuck you very much for being a fabulous <laughs> guest on the Humorology <laughs> podcast. Fuck you I very much too, Paul. Fuck you very much too. <laughs> The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production.